0: Twenty-one, verse 33. This is where we're going to start reading here in just a couple of minutes. As I was going through this passage of Scripture, I was reminded of a story right at the very beginning of the Bible. We go all the way back and we think for a minute or two about the story of Cain and Abel and those two brothers offering a sacrifice to God. And God accepts Abel's sacrifice and he does not accept Cain's sacrifice. Sacrifice, And so Cain grows jealous of his brother Abel, and he actually kills his brother and buries his brother. And then God, a little bit later on, shows up, and he walks and finds Cain. And uh, knowing fully well what has happened to Abel and where he is, God asks uh, Cain, now, where did your brother go? And Cain says, Lord, you know, what am I? My brother's keeper, Cain uh, was working on getting out of murder, getting out of treating his brother the way that he did with this ridiculous question, am I my brother's keeper? He's acting as if he is not responsible for his brother. I was reminded of that story because a lot of what we're going to read this morning tells us that the book of Exodus sees things in a very different light. God, through this passage of Scripture, and we've touched on this from time to time, it's important to remember why these laws are built the way that they are. God is building a nation of people who learn how to love their neighbor well. They're going to learn how to handle their property. They're going to learn how to treat their animals. They're going to learn how to treat people who are completely different than they are. their family members and the members of other families. God is building a civilization that is in the mold of his character and will and design. Cain's question is this knee-jerk reaction that is inside of the human heart. But God's regulations, his laws, are building something completely different inside of his people for them and for the rest of the world. So we're in another passage this morning that feels like a string of random laws about pits and oxen and sorceresses and uh, all kinds of other things. But they're all held together by the will of God and by the good So here's what we're going to read this morning. First of all, we're going to talk about this. We are responsible to God for the way that we treat our neighbor. I think it's going to show up in interesting ways in our text this morning. Again, several laws about animals, about land, about borrowed property, but all of it we're going to see keeps bringing the people of God back to God. Property matters, but life matters more. God's law is going to create, again, this equal protection under His sight and under His judgment and under His will. So we are responsible under God for how we treat our neighbors. Secondly, we're going to discover this, that our lives are a unity of the sacred and the secular. What this means is that God sees absolutely no difference between our lives outside of the walls of the church and the life inside of the church. God does not see a difference between my spiritual life and my work life and my secular life. God's going to put all of these things together inside of these laws for us, and I think we'll watch that unfold in really great ways. We're learning that absolutely everything we do is part of how we honor God and display the will and goodness of God to those who are around us. So let's begin reading in Exodus chapter twenty-one. We're here in verse thirty-three. I'm going to read a couple of these laws here at the end of the chapter. Exodus twenty-one thirty-three, friends. This is the word of the Lord. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share the price, and the dead beast shall also they shall also share. Where if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. All right, we've got a good half an hour of commentary on these two passages of Scripture coming up. This introduces for us God's concept of restoration and responsibility. If you're doing this with your land, if you're doing this with the animals that are on your land, and something that could have been um, avoided, something that could have been foreseen happens, then here's how we handle restitution. Here's how we set things straight between you and your neighbor and the oxen and the sheep and all of this that occurs. So God is setting up this notion of responsibility between me and my neighbor, and restitution. And so that is one of the themes that continues through the next few verses, how we're relating to one another and how we settle these issues. So, chapter uh, 22, beginning in verse 1, we're going to keep reading through some of this scripture. "'If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep.'" Um, "'Robbery, thieving is a big deal in the law of Exodus. "'If a thief is found breaking in "'and is struck so that he dies, "'there shall be no blood guilt for him. "'But if the sun has risen on him, "'there shall be blood guilt for him. "'He shall surely pay. "'If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. "'If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, "'whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, "'he shall pay double.'" If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the beast in his own field and his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, so this is actually devastation to a harvest. This is our food for the rest of the year. He who started the fire shall make full restitution. So if a man steals an ox or his sheep, stealing in all of its consequences, remember that these laws now are a rolling commentary on the Ten Commandments. So as God lays out those Ten Commandments, and we spent so much time with that, the more we read these, the more we hear reflections of those Ten Commandments in how God is laying this out for his people. The oxen and the sheep, they're very important to their lives. and In fact, they are their livelihood. So it's not just something that happens to a pet. So theft is dangerous. And it's actually worthy of all of this multiple restitution if a thief is caught, right? So serious stuff for the people of God and for their livelihoods. Then we've got this interesting thing that happens. A thief breaks in at night, and if you kill that thief at night, you are justified in doing that, and there's no blood guilt there. If a thief breaks in during the day, and you kill that thief during the day, then there is blood guilt. You shouldn't kill the thief. So the way that this plays out is really interesting. It is all about the intention. So what's the difference between at night and during the day? This is how the commentary is rolled out on this passage of Scripture. If a thief breaks in at night, the assumption is the family is there. And the thief is ready to do harm to the family to get what the thief wants. So if that's the case... The thief breaks in, then you can actually kill the thief before the thief does whatever the thief wants to do, and all of that's great before the law of God. If the thief comes during the day, the thought is, well, the family's out, they're doing their work, they're doing their business, so the thief has no intention of actually doing harm to your family, so you're not allowed to do X, Y, and Z. So the way that the law unfolds over time in rabbinical tradition is more about intent, than it is about the time of day. So this is how it gets applied by the people of God over time. Why did they break in? What were they doing? And what are you justified in doing in return? Walking through this, every now and then you get to read these, these old rabbinical laws, the way that they apply these things. So we've got the book of Exodus and Leviticus and some other laws scattered throughout Deuteronomy. But then you've got, through Jewish tradition, you have volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes of stuff written on every single sentence and every single paragraph. So there's a lot more out there about how they apply these things. I liked this one. I think a lot of you, I know you people, I think you'll like this one too. This is part of the rabbinical teaching on this passage of Scripture. If a thief enters your home at night, wake up before he finds you and kill him that's how this passage gets applied. I'm like, okay, here we go. But the notion of restitution and theft and damage and accident continues. Grazing beasts, you've overgrazed your land. God cares about how the land is worked. If your beasts get into your neighbor's field and eat that, if a fire starts in your property and it it takes out your neighbor's harvest, then you owe restitution for that. So... God is building these relationships between me and my neighbor, how we work, how we live, what belongs to each other, and how valuable it is. So again, this is significant for the people of God. So we keep going through some of this. Chapter 22, verse 7. We keep reading through the passage. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found... The owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is an ox for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or any kind of lost thing of which one says this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, then the owner is responsible. He shall not make restitution. If it was hired, uh, it came for its hiring fee. Right? So, On and on. These are their lives. This is how they live with each other. This is how they work their land. So God is dealing with this is what's important between absolutely all of you. And in the middle of verse 9, we've got this moment where the principle comes out of the passage. And when we read stuff like this, this is how we understand. This is how we figure out what's going on. In the middle of verse 9, it just says, For every breach of trust, whether it's this, 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 or this... Both parties are going to come before God. They're going to come before the elders of the tribe. They're going to come before the Levites if they live in that town. They're going to bring it before them, and they're going to inquire of God, and they're going to settle the issue. So every one of these issues is about bringing the people of God back to the will of God and his rule over their lives. So here's where we see this come to light in the middle of all of these laws about oxen and pits and fences. God's people are responsible to him for their treatment of their neighbor. Even when it gets complicated, even when others need to step in and say, okay, the the third party, the the people in charge here are going to figure out what's actually going on. For the people of God, it's always this matter of, we're going to take it to God. We're going to listen to what he has to say, what his law has to say, what his leaders have to say, and we're going to follow that. So we're bringing everything before God. So much of what we're reading reminds us of the laws that Christ gives us. He says the the first and second of the great commandments in the New Testament. The first is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like it. When Christ gives, actually both of these commands, but the second command, to love your neighbor as yourself, he's quoting from the middle of Old Testament law in Leviticus. Leviticus 19.18, the last section of this verse, just simply says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And if you read Leviticus 19... The entire chapter is, if this happens, then do this. If this happens, then do this. Treat your neighbor like this. Treat your neighbor like this. Treat your neighbor like this. Love your neighbor as yourself because I am the Lord. And he uses that covenant name, Yahweh, that he gave to Moses say, I am your God. See, God is establishing a civilization. He's establishing a way for his people to live with one another. We see over and over again, and we're going to see it again later on in this passage of Scripture, there is equal treatment under the law for people who in other cultures would not get that. God actually begins the explanation of His law with those who are marginalized. There's equal treatment under the law. Property is important. But it's not as important as human life. Men, women, children, and even the stranger, the sojourner, all live under the same law. These are incredible advances in their day and age. In God's people, this is important, I think, for us to hear more and more and to figure out what this means for us. God's people are intended to see God as their final judge. He is the one to whom we are finally responsible to. What does God say about this? What is God up to? What does his law say? What does Christ say about this? This is the one to whom we are responsible for everything that happens among us. We bring it before God. So they're intended to see God. They're learning to see God as their final judge. So even though you and I don't you know, keep a lot of oxen and dig a lot of pits in our backyards for most of us, The people of God are intended to live according to the character and the law of God. This actually puts us together in a Christ-like way, and it's actually better for our neighbors as well if the people of God do this. And we watch civilizations clash in incredible ways, and a lot of it is over what God runs that civilization what God is forming and shaping the values of that civilization, and they clash. Let's keep reading chapter 22, verse 16. Another one of these passages where, you know, you're reading it at night, you're trying to get it in before you go to bed, and you think to yourself, I don't know. Verse 16, chapter 22 If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If the father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction." You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Does God take that seriously or not? He reminds them. You treat people who are not part of your tribe the way that you treat your neighbor who is because my eye is on them. He says, remember, this was you not that long ago. And you know what it means to be slaves and to be mistreated. So I'm not gonna allow you to treat other people that way. God is doing radical things amongst his people. But this passage begins with this law about if any man seduces a virgin... And here's another place where you and I just have to be comfortable with reading and seeing and hearing things in their context and inside of their world. We can't just assume that their world and the way that they handled these things were exactly the same as the way that we might look at it or our culture would handle these things. So what, that, what we read there in those couple of verses, beginning in verse 16, is actually another law that protects the rights and the dignity of daughters— and the integrity of a father's home. This is what God is at inside of this passage of Scripture. We're dealing again in this passage about an arranged marriage. An arranged marriage in that culture has this betrothal period, and the fiancés are intended to be faithful to one another, and that betrothal period is long enough to make sure that the the daughter the girl has not been unfaithful to the man. They're expected to be faithful to one another. And then there is a dowry, there is a bride price. So the husband-to-be, or the family of the husband-to-be, pays the bride price for the daughter, and what we have is this brand new connection, this covenantal connection between two more families inside of the community. So, God says, when a man seduces a virgin, an unmarried girl, and in this passage the scholars say there's no hint of rape... There are laws about rape, but this just isn't one of them. If that happens, he has actually broken the process. And again, in their culture, he has made that young lady unattractive to other potential husbands and families. We can even think in this moment of Joseph and Mary and their story. Joseph discovers she's pregnant, and he actually, being a righteous man, wants to let her go quietly. This is just their culture. But here's what God says is going to happen if a man seduces a virgin and breaks this cultural covenant that they have with one another. He says one of two things are going to happen. He's going to marry the young lady and he's going to pay the dowry price. That's what's going to happen. But if dad thinks this guy is a jerk and he doesn't want to give his daughter to this guy, The the dad brings the daughter back into the home. And again, in a shame and honor culture, that's not guaranteed. So God says, Dad, you're going to bring your daughter back into the home, and he's still going to pay the dowry price. So God is protecting her, and God is protecting the integrity of that father's home and his leadership of that family. So this is about sexual integrity, but it is also about honoring a cultural covenant. This is how we deal with each other. And when things go wrong, this is how we apply the law of God. Then we've got these little sort of one-shot verses here for two or three verses. He says, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. So other translations just use the word witch. You should not let a witch live. This is the same word that was used of Pharaoh's magicians early on. When uh, uh, Moses and Aaron are confronting them, the plagues are getting started, and as his magicians are able to copy a couple of these plagues, this is the same word used of them. This word is used maybe nine, ten times in the Old Testament, not very often, but every single time it is used, it is about dabbling with the demonic. So that's why this is so important to God. You shall not let someone who is calling on demons in your culture to live. That's how seriously God takes this stuff. Because friends, the biblical truth about these things, it's so important for you and I to see these things biblically, as opposed to the way our culture handles these things. Demons are real, they really do exist, and they have nothing but harmful intent for everyone that they engage with, and absolutely everything that they do. So God says, my people are forbidden from playing with them, dealing with them, calling on them, asking them to do anything. God says we're forbidden from doing that. Most of reality is unseen. A spiritual realm that we're taught about in Scripture, maybe we don't always completely understand, but it is powerful and it is real, and every time God deals with it like this, he says, this is it, right? You shall not allow a sorceress to live. Sorcery is subject to capital punishment because it brings the work of Satan to bear inside of the lives of God's people, and it's an open act of rebellion against God, seeking demons to do the kinds of things that we would go to God for in the first place. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death, God deals with bestiality a handful of times inside of the Old Testament. And this is another one of those where we think, well, okay, those crazy ancient people and those crazy pagan religions did all kinds of weird things. Of course, you know, that belonged there. God had to talk about that. Friends, there are people in our culture who are tenured professors and important thinkers. That's a great phrase, you know, experts in their field who are talking about how it's unethical to tell people they cannot have sex with animals. It's called speciesism. So this is actually bubbling back to the surface inside of our culture. So these old laws that we read actually still belong to us. We still have to hear this. It breaks this sacred barrier that God has created between humanity and the animal kingdom. God created Adam and put him in the garden, had him name all of the animals. And that's just a cool thing to think about, what Adam had to do to actually name all the animals. Then God says, but there's not any one of them that's fit for him. So God puts him to sleep, and, and then he wakes up, and he's Adam and Eve now. God has actually created a difference, a barrier between animals and between Adam and Eve. So again, it's still important for us to hear some of this kind of stuff. Friends, what happens to a culture when we lose our biblical roots is stunning. There is no bottom floor, okay? Just keep that in mind. Do you think at some point we've reached the bottom floor? I guarantee you someone's going to find the next trap door to go to the next level down. This is what happens when a culture loses its biblical roots. And then God says, whoever... "...sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction." So God reinforces the first of the Ten Commandments again, "...have no other gods before me." He says, "...if you do, they'll be devoted to destruction." This is a phrase that shows up throughout Old Testament law and it has a range of meaning and application. Everything from someone who's essentially brought to court so that their behavior would change to someone who is excluded from the camp. They're actually kicked out of the people of God if they worship another god. It can, if it is extreme enough, can actually involve capital punishment again. But here's what's going on. The way daughters are treated. Um, the way sorceresses are treated, the way bestiality is treated, the way false worship is treated, God continues to separate his people from pagan worship, from pagan religions. He continues to say, this is how the rest of the world does things. You're going to do them differently because you belong to me. So here, in the midst of all of this, is what's happening. The people of God are warned against worshiping other gods and living like they worship other gods gods. So just as God is working on conforming his people to his image, every other pagan deity, every other ideology is shaping their worshipers to their image as well. Refusing a daughter's right or a father's home, calling on demons, defiling animals, on and on it goes. It really does matter who we worship. It really does matter even what a nation or a tribe or a civilization worships. That's what God is after in this passage. Psalm 115 verses 4 through 8 is really good on this. He says, speaking of idolatry, he says, "...their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear." noses, but do not smell. There are layers of irony inside of this. You've built for yourself gods with all of these little things that you think they can do and none of them can do that. God says, there is no image that captures me. You cannot create an image with eyes and ears and noses for me, but guess what? I see everything, I hear everything, I smell everything, and I do everything. It's, it, the layers of irony are great. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. For those who make them become like them. Utterly impotent in this world and unable to do the things God made us to do. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Deaf, mute, powerless, and totally impotent in life. It really does matter who we worship. God then says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or a stranger who is inside of your land. So what God does with this passage is he is actually applying their theology to the rest of the world. It's very easy for us to treat those who are near to us inside of our circle, our families, our wider circles, as valuable individuals. It's easy for us to see them as people who carry with them the image of God. And in the world that the Israelites lived in, all of that notion of value was very tribal. Our tribe is important. Your tribe is supposed to be defeated or enslaved. So when God begins to talk to his people and he says, when a sojourner, someone who has no tribe or family among you, someone who speaks a different language than you, someone who looks different than you, is passing through or has found themselves in your land, the same law that applies to your family belongs to them too. God is extending their imagination about who is valuable, what it means for all of humanity to be created in the image of God. He's rewiring them. And we inherit that tradition. We don't inherit the Egyptian or the Roman or the Greek tradition. We inherit this notion. The rabbinical tradition was actually very strict about this. This is the way of the people of God recognizing the value of God in others as well. So we value others because of God's creation, and we value others because God defends their rights. If you mistreat them, and they cry out to me, you may remember earlier in the book of Exodus, the people of God are slaves, and as Moses is talking to God, God tells Moses a few times, they've cried out to me, and I have heard their cries. So then by his mercy and his strength, they are freed from slavery. So God says the same thing here. If they are among you and they are mistreated, I hear their cry just like I heard your cry. And you treat them the way that I am calling you to do it. So God is just doing this transformation inside of his people. We continue now in verse 25 of chapter 22. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor... You shall not be like a money lender to them, and you shall not exact interest from them. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God or curse a ruler of your people." You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your son shall be given to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. I love these moments in the Old Testament where you and I finally think, there's a sentence that makes sense. You shall be consecrated to me, and then the next sentence doesn't. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. There's holiness and unholiness, and even in the da- their daily lives, in the food that they eat, God is making them holy, separating them out for himself. So he says, if you lend money. So again, inside of their world, inside of their economy... Money lenders who charged exorbitant interest were mostly interested in keeping other people in debt and keeping other people under their thumb. So God says specifically, if you lend money to one of my people, you're not going to do that because the idea is they're going to get out of debt. We're going to honor both sides of this process and they're going to work and you're going to hold the collateral and we're going to actually clear all of these things up. So you're not going to lend in such a way as to keep someone actually under your thumb. And then this law, we've mentioned this law. It's in the book of Deuteronomy. Here it is in the book of Exodus. And I love how this law works. If the only thing someone has to lend to you is collateral, I'm in debt to you. I need to work off the debt. I don't have sheep and oxen. I don't have things in my household of value. The only thing I have literally is my coat. It's interesting. It's interesting. God says, okay, take the coat, but give it back at night because that's the only thing that's gonna keep your neighbor warm. I love how this law works because it honors the entire process. If someone is so poor that the only thing they have is their cloak to secure work or what we would call a loan or labor, they are still expected to work it off. Does that make sense? They're still expected to work and pay off their debt. But the person then who has that is actually expected to make sure that they stay warm at night. So again, God has taken care of this entire process among his people. And in the middle of all of that, he says, you shall not delay to offer of the fullness of your harvest. He begins to talk about sacrifice in worship. He's going to give much more detail about this later on inside of his law. The firstborn law, we've dealt with that in Exodus chapter 13. But here is where we, we feel something else. We get something inside of the text that's important. Scattered among these rules about oxen and sorcery and pits and, and animals and on and on it goes, God just throws in regulations about worship and sacrifice and holiness in consecration to him. There are no two sets of rules for different parts of life. And here's what I want us to hear this morning. For God's people, there is no separation between the sacred and the secular. Absolutely every part of our lives is supposed to be guided by the law of God. That's how he's building this for his people. Then as you and I belong to Jesus Christ, and we filter these things through the gospel and the New Testament, the way Paul handles these things, we are learning the same lessons. So the same God who gave laws about pits and auction is the same God who gives laws about worship and sacrifice, and we belong to both of them in exactly the same way. We're following the character and the will of the same God with absolutely everything that there is about us. So God in the Old Testament is building a people who belong to him, not just when they perform sacrifices or make their pilgrimages or go to the temple a few times a year. It's not just that. Christ is not building a people for himself that looks like him on Sunday mornings and a couple of other times during the week. He's implanting his character in will and design, into every relationship into the way that they use money, into the way that you and I handle other people, all of this for you and me, friends, is about the character and the will of God at work within me. This is why God says at the end of this chapter, you shall be consecrated to me. It's just the word holy. You're going to be holy for me, everything about you. It's gonna be holy. The intention is, is that everything about our lives, all we do is going to honor God. A couple of passages of scripture to have in our hearts and minds this morning for the follower of Jesus Christ. I love these passages, Romans chapter 12, the first couple of verses. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. It's not just to present your couple of hours a week to church as a living sacrifice, but everything you do, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. That's what these laws are about. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, and perfect. We read through these laws, and you and I in our world and culture don't know exactly what they're doing, so it takes time for us to absorb them and figure them out and how they work their way into the way that we live our lives. But this is the point here in Romans chapter 12, that we would present everything that we do to God, not be conformed to the image of this world, but to the image of Jesus Christ. And when we learn those things, then we're actually able to learn what is the will of God. is good and pleasing and acceptable and perfect before God's eyes. And then Colossians chapter 3, the first four verses, friends, this needs to be the kind of thing that's rolling around in our hearts and minds on a regular basis. The Apostle Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Fill your soul with the things of Christ. For you have died. That old life is gone. And your life now is hidden with Christ in God. So when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray.